0: You on eight. Two on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand
1: by for your base. Welcome to EMScast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Matt Mendez, and I'm Ross Orpit. We are back for part two of the physiologically
0: difficult airway mini-series. Just as a reminder, we are covering this because traditionally the anatomically difficult airway has gotten all of the intention, but the physiologically difficult airway is arguably way more dangerous. And the inspiration for these episodes is a is from a review paper published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2015, titled the physiologically difficult airway.
1: Every intubator should be prepared to deal with uh, four of the most commonly physiologically difficult airways. Those four things are hypoxia, hypotension, severe metabolic acidosis, and right ventricular failure. Uh, Like we talked about last time, we're going to cover each one in an episode for each of the four major uh, categories. Last time we covered hypoxia, so check that out if you haven't already. It's episode 21 from January 31st, 2022. I definitely recommend listening to that before you listen to this one. And all these episodes are going to have overlap, um, and we're going to recommend multiple times throughout this episode that you eventually listen to all four episodes twice. So a lot of homework. So
0: Matt, I guess uh, being episode two, that's going to make today's episode hypotension. Why does hypotension make airway management difficult? Is it because the process of intubation can convert hypotension to cardiac arrest for some reason?
1: Yeah, exactly. What we do when we intubate them can drop their blood pressure so, so, so low that they die during or shortly after the intubation. I also think that first and foremost, figuring out the etiology of hypotension isn't always obvious and can be a a pretty big challenge. And that's tough because how you deal with the low blood pressure and the low perfusion is different based on what's causing it, which, which makes intubating and reversing these processes very challenging.
0: Okay, so then let's talk about the broad causes of hypotension first. I think the easy one for me to always remember is hemorrhagic shock, either from trauma or GI bleed.
1: Yeah, hemorrhagic shock is a specific type of hypovolemic shock. So hypovolemic shock is the broad category you'll see in textbooks and stuff. Um, and unless you have blood on your ambulance, you'll be dealing with them by giving crystalloid fluid, so normal saline or lactated ringers. Then you have distributive shock, which is divided into septic and non-septic. Non-septic distributive shock is going to be things like anaphylactic shock or neurogenic shock. Uh, neurogenic shock is a reminder you get like a spinal cord injury and that results in, um, like profound vasodilation and bradycardia. You can and should try fluids in these, but they often need epi, norepi, or or some other vasopressor strategy.
0: I want to pause here for a second and talk about the physiology of shock. Sometimes when we talk about shock, it's best to think of the cardiovascular system as a plumbing system. If we think of the heart as the pump and the blood vessels as the pipes, then when we talk about something like hemorrhagic shock, we're talking about the pipes just not having any fluid in them. And then when we talk about something like distributive shock, we talk about the pipes being adjustable. And if we dilate those pipes or if we increase the radius across those pipes, a couple things are gonna happen. One, blood is gonna start pooling in the venous system and not return to the heart, and thus the heart's gonna have less blood to pump forward. And two, the arterioles are gonna dilate as well, and thus decreasing the resistance across that, and it's gonna decrease your blood pressure as well. Both of these occur in distributive shock, in neurogenic shock because of loss of sympathetic nerve innervation to the blood vessels, leading to bradycardia and vasodilation. And in septic shock, because of inappropriate cytokines, which cause a exaggerated overdilation of blood vessels. Okay, so not too hard so far. Give fluids, then give pressors. Seems firefighter proof.
1: Well, Ross, firefighters and plumbers understand pump and fluid mechanics way better than any of us, so they might actually put our oversimplifications to shame here. And the next type of shock, cardiogenic, gets a little tougher, and it's definitely not simple.
0: Right. So cardiogenic shock in that. Analogy is actually going to be a pump failure. So rather than a loss of fluids in the pipes that you'll see with hypovolemic or distributive shock, it's going to be a problem with the pump.
1: Exactly. The pump isn't working. So putting more fluids into the system isn't always a good idea and can worsen the heart's failure to pump even further. Usually with these patients, you are intubating because their lungs are full of fluid and they are hypoxic, not necessarily because the heart's not working well, if that makes sense. So all of the things we talked about in the hypoxia episode apply here, but If their heart failure is so bad that they are in cardiogenic shock on top of being hypoxic, you have two problems to fix before you can safely intubate them, the hypoxia and the hypotension.
0: Ah, yes. Resuscitate before you intubate. I think that brings up a good point about septic shock. So sepsis is usually associated with two things as well, a pretty bad metabolic acidosis and a severe metabolic acidosis is going to get its own episode in the physiologically difficult airway, but it doesn't always mean they are also hypotensive. But if you do add shock to that, now you are dealing again with two areas of resuscitation before you can safely intubate someone
1: and that's fine that's that's the fun part of the job but it also means you have to listen to each of these episodes twice so you can think about them all together to truly be an airway jedi
0: all right so moving on i guess the next classification of shock would be obstructive then
1: yep and and that's the one i always forget the name of and i think it's the hardest one to remember in the back of the ambulance um or even in the resuscitation bay when you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on Some major examples of obstructive shock would be pulmonary embolism, cardiac tamponade, and tension pneumothorax.
0: In these situations of obstructive shock, the heart is theoretically healthy and undamaged, but there's some outside force that's causing the heart to acutely fail. The air in the chest of attention pneumothorax isn't allowing the RV and LV to do their jobs as they're being compressed. Fluid in the pericardium is also compressing the RV and LV and not allowing them to do their jobs. And then a clot in the arteries of the lung or a PE is causing the RV to fail because it can't push well enough against that clot.
1: Russ, did you notice that all of those have a component of RV failure to them?
0: You're going to say we have a specific episode about RV failure coming <laughs> up and that we need to resuscitate two problems, and it's important to listen all of these episodes twice to master this stuff. Exactly.
1: The important point here is to resuscitate before you intubate and listen to all the episodes twice.
0: Okay. So why does intubation, when these things are going on, worsen hypotension and cause peri-intubation cardiac arrest?
1: I'm going to oversimplify this into two broad categories. The medications we give them to intubate them, aka RSI, and the change from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation. These are the two big things that cause someone to die during or shortly after intubation.
0: Right. So let's break down RSI first. RSI or rapid sequence intubation usually involves giving an induction agent that is a sedative like etomidate or ketamine, and then followed by a paralytic like succinylcholine or rocuronium. Giving these medications when we intubate tends to increase our success and speed with intubation, but they also have downsides and they can take away our sympathetic drive and tone. And if you do that to someone who is already 80 over 40, you can convert this hypotension into PEA.
1: There's a lot of noise about Atomidate versus ketamine and which one's better, which one's safer. And I, 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 Ross, you can disagree with this if you want or expound, but I think for the purposes of this podcast and our audience, the most appropriate thing to say is both are probably hemodynamically neutral and either are top tier choices for emergent induction.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think we have multiple studies now that have had some conflicting results. And at the end of the day, I think that they're equal in my mind when it comes to their hemodynamic
1: effects. Ross, did you have RSI when you were a medic? No,
0: the agency I worked for did not have RSI. So I guess what you're saying is I'm good. I don't have to worry about intubation causing the hypotensive patient to die then, right? False.
1: Absolutely false. Okay. The second broad category of why they die is the switch to positive pressure ventilation. Right now, when we breathe, all of us who are listening to this and performing this podcast are using negative pressure ventilation. In other words, our diaphragm drops down, resulting in a lower pressure in our chest than what's outside in the atmosphere. This causes air to rush into our lungs because air and liquid will always chase the lower pressure. This is what happens with a waterfall too. But what that negative pressure in the chest also causes is a lower pressure in the right atrium than the rest of the body. So just like air, blood will rush into the chest too. This is called increased venous return and results in increased preload, which we're all familiar with the importance of preload.
0: Right. Okay. So you're saying as soon as you intubate them and bag them or put them on a vent, you lose that increased venous return and you lose that preload.
1: Exactly. In fact, you probably make it worse. And loss of that preload will convert hypotension into pulseless electrical activity or PEA.
0: Okay. So let's talk about how you resuscitate before you intubate in the broad causes of hypotension. So let's start with hypovolemic. Seems easy. So I'll take this one. If for some (laughs) reason you have to intubate these patients, it tends to be for altered mental status and or airway protection. They don't have a gag reflex anymore, but before you do, you want to give them a fluid bolus or blood if it's indicated and you have it. And then consider hanging a vasopressor if you don't see response with, with those measures. Here's another plug. We recently did a Dirty Epi episode with pharmacist Lance Ray, which is really great. And you can check that one out as well on on the podcast stream. So our choice of RSI agents shouldn't really matter here as long as you're using the most hemodynamically neutral, either ketamine or
1: etomidate. Yep, exactly. And do you want to take a stab at cardiogenic, Ross?
0: I'm going to guess you're going to say to actually try not to intubate these in the field.
1: Exactly. Uh, You are usually needing to intubate these patients for hypoxia. Treat the CHF like you normally would to whatever your protocols do for CHF and put them on CPAP or BiPAP or bag them like we talked about in the hypoxia episode. Even using the bag valve mask plus nasal cannula plus a peep valve technique to recreate BiPAP but that is safe for obtunded patients um, should allow you to manage an obtunded hypoxic patient until you can get them to the hospital. However, if you happen to have really long transport times, you, you likely have more meds available to you too, so go ahead and use those. Follow whatever your local protocol is as always, but in general, I recommend using Norepi or Epi in these cases. Only if these agents don't work would I consider adding on a second presser for inotropy. A lot of times you'll hear about a medication called dobutamine. No matter what, I would encourage you to call for help and talk through an approach if you really think intubation is needed.
0: Okay, so that leaves distributive and obstructive. These are easy, I think, so I'll take them.
1: I wouldn't fall for that trap. These can be really tough, dude.
0: Okay, let me give it a whirl. Uh, Distributive, we are going to start with neurogenic shock. So fluids and pressors.
1: Exactly. And you are usually intubating these people for completely different reasons than the distributive shock. Like if the injury is in the C-spine and they aren't breathing because of diaphragm paralysis, or if you're dealing with other trauma or there's some other need for airway protection. um, So fluids and, and pressors are exactly correct.
0: Okay, next in our distributive shock would be septic shock. And I'm going to take another guess here that you don't want me intubating these people in the field either.
1: Not just in the field, but anywhere. Uh, These are extremely acidotic patients and they need to breathe super fast to compensate for the acidity in their blood. Once you've seen how these patients breathe, you could get a pretty good understanding of how it's really almost impossible to recreate that with a mechanical ventilator. And as soon as we intubate them, they, they stop breathing that acid off, and they essentially die of severe acidemia. No vent setting is going to match the brainstem's ability to ventilate and compensate for metabolic acidosis. Fluids, pressors, oxygen, and avoid intubation at all costs.
0: That's a good foreshadowing for our upcoming full episode on intubating metabolic acidosis like septic shock or DKA. Remember to listen to all of these a second time so you can be a beast at these multi-problem airways. And I guess that leaves anaphylactic shock in this category. I feel like this isn't too hard. Fluids, epi, epidrip, Benadryl, all those meds.
1: Yeah, I think anaphylactic shock uh, being the subcategory of distributive shock is probably one of the areas where medic school does a phenomenal job. We do get a great education in this area. I think the, the other thing I would warn is that there's probably going to be a component of anatomic difficulty. In other words, the airways closing, the, the tongue is big, the lips are big. Um, so you're going to be dealing with airway involvement, anatomic difficulty, and then distributive shock. So it's, it's a fun case, but it's scary as hell. And I would know how to crike in your sleep.
0: Okay, so we've talked about hypovolemic shock, cardiogenic shock, and distributive shock. Now let's talk about obstructive shock. Major examples of these are going to be PE, tamponade, and pneumothorax, right? I guess with tamponade and pneumothorax, you don't want to intubate them until you fix the tamponade or pneumothorax.
1: 100%. It's extremely unlikely you'll know a tamponade exists in the field, but should you be listening to this when ultrasound is available on all ambulances, or you have some other way of knowing, you have to call medical control. Pericardiocentesis is scary as hell and a procedure that even myself, I would be uh, really nervous to do. And unless you train on this regularly, you want someone's input and guidance before you do it. Needling a pneumothorax is way easier, just to be honest, and the biggest risk is that it doesn't work.
0: Okay, but what about PE and, as we talked about, the RV failure it causes?
1: Ross, I think you know what I'm going to say. Don't intubate them? Don't intubate them, exactly. RV failure will be its own episode, and we will talk about the spiral of death that it causes. Pulmonary embolism, or PE, causes RV failure and usually results in hypoxia due to the lungs' inability to exchange oxygen uh, with fresh blood. Use all of the tricks in the hypoxia episode and do everything in your power not to intubate them in the field. In the ED, we will still do everything in our power that we can to not intubate them in the emergency department. If they are becoming more and more and more hypoxic despite doing everything we talked about in the hypoxia episode and they are going to die anyway, you can intubate them. But if you have pressers available, I would strongly encourage you to hang one first and get it infusing before you start the process of intubation.
0: It's hard to know in the ED if any of these things are causing the hypotension, so it's of course going to be even harder in the field. Take as best a history as you can, as this is going to be your best friend, and try to narrow down to what you think is the most likely scenario causing that low blood pressure and need for intubation. Once you've narrowed down, then resuscitate to those problems before you intubate. And listen to all the episodes twice. There you go. And just as a a review of this episode, we're first going to want to do everything we can to correct that hypotension. And the way we correct that hypotension is going to be to correct the underlying cause. And so if that's lack of fluids, give them fluids. Lack of blood, give them blood. Lack of... Pumping. Pumping. Help the pump out. And if that's uh, uh, because there's an outside force, such as a pneumothorax, a pericardial tamponade, relieve that first. You're gonna wanna correct those issues before you intubate, because if you don't, that intubation can lead to arrest. And then finally, there are certain conditions you're just gonna wanna at all costs try not to intubate, specifically the severely acidotic patient from septic shock or DK, or DK, and the obstructive PE causing RV failure, or really any of these shocks that cause RV failure. There you have it, folks. Intubating the hypotensive patient should make you scared. For all the reasons we talked about in this episode, the act of intubation can worsen that hypotension and put the patient at risk for sudden cardiovascular collapse. Every effort should be made to improve the hypotension prior to intubation in order to prevent this. And the treatment to improve that hypotension is going to depend on the cause. So take a good history and do a good physical. And remember, Always resuscitate before you intubate. Stay tuned for future episodes as we complete our series on intubating the physiologically difficult airway.